Welcome to episode number 12 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're looking at increasing awareness of combustible dust hazards, generating lessons learned from instances as they occur, and creating a worldwide global community around combustible dust safety. In today's episode, we have an interview with Jason Reason, Director of Combustible Dust Services at Seam Group, formerly Llewellyn. And in the episode, we get into a lot of the challenges that Jason sees in, in the combustible dust safety community today. Jason has an extensive background in combustible dust safety, being a compliance officer with Indiana OSHA, IOSHA, for over 13 years, from the period of 2000 to 2013, um, and then going to the combustible dust safety consulting side since then with Llewellyn and now Seam Group. And he's seen a lot of things. Rarely can you find this kind of combination of, of working as a compliance officer for so long and then moving into becoming a specialist in this area. He's got a lot to share. So in the episode, we cover what it looks like to be a compliance officer um, from kind of the outside or from the inside looking out. So what what is it like at a time when we had Imperial Sugar Refinery explosion, we had OSHA coming out with this national emphasis program, come with safety board with our large reports. What did that look like for compliance officers at that time? And we get into some of the difficulties that there are today and some of the challenges that compliance officers are facing, um, in particular with the experience that he has as a safety consultant now within industry. Then we get into what he sees some of the biggest issues that we have. We talk about difficulties around training, both industry participants, workers, uh, OSHA personnel, and and just people that are involved in in the industry's handling combustible dust, the, the difficulties we have in training of that. What is the definition of a qualified person? in terms of performing dust hazard analysis, and what are some of the other issues that we have with consolidating standards uh, moving forward, and how do we how do we actually go about fixing that or, or addressing those challenges in the future? So I really enjoyed today's episode with Jason. I know you'll enjoy it as well. I want to thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Today we're doing an interview with Jason Reason. Director of Combustible Dust Safety at Seam Group, formerly Llewellyn Technologies. And today we're going to be talking about uh, what it's like to be a compliance officer in the, the world of combustible dust safety, a lot of ex- Jason's experience from being a consultant in this space, and then what do you think some of the biggest issues are that we have as a community in combustible dust safety today? So Jason, I just want to say thank you for coming to the show. I appreciate you having you here. Uh, thanks, Chris, and it's great to be here. So I first met Jason last year, actually, in, in April of 2018 um, at the International Powder Show in Chicago. I can't remember who tipped me on to kind of stopping by your booth and talking to you. I actually saw you present that that week, too. But I was right away um, pretty pretty struck by the, the degree of knowledge that you have. And for the listeners, Jason's background, he did 13 years with Indiana State OSHA as a compliance officer focusing on combustible dust and other safety areas. Then he went on to be, I think, five years in combustible dust consulting now with Llewellyn Technology as our director of combustible dust services, uh, which is now Seam Group. And he's part of eight technical committees, several of them NFPA, and he's chair of NFPA 664. So not only have a really big background in combustible dust safety, but he's also seen both sides of the fence from compliance, from OSHA, from consulting, and now on this kind of bigger role looking at NFPA and how do we guide the standards in that? So, Jason, I thought we'd start just by kind of going through briefly a little bit of your background, starting with compliance and then moving through to how you ended up transferring to the consulting side. Okay, sounds great. So, in I think your compliance, safety, and health role was from 2000 to 2013. What did that look like with IOSHA? Well, I started uh, with IOSHA right out of college, uh, right out of Purdue. 
went there as an industrial hygienist. And for the first few years, I'd say for the first 10 years or so, did mostly industrial hygiene cases. Near the end of that period, I started to get the cases that no one else wanted in terms of complexity. A lot of my cases made the news. And at one point, I was 75% of the caseload for Indiana OSHA. And then the whole combustible dust thing hit in 2008 with Imperial Sugar. So I was one of the ones that was selected to go up to the course uh, at the OSHA Training Institute in Arlington Heights, Illinois, which is where they train all the OSHA people, whether you're state or federal. And so I took that course and then got thrown into my first combustible dust inspection probably about a few months after that. And I realized really quick that the amount of knowledge that OSHA had on combustible dust was very few, uh, even with that course. So the last five years of my OSHA uh, time, I primarily did nothing but combustible dust, uh, including accidents, fatalities, you know, fires, explosions, and even just stuff where, you know, somebody saw some dust and needed somebody to deal with it. But I got to the point in those five years where I started to basically get calls from other federal and state plan OSHAs as far as offices and states ask, how are you making your citations hold up? Because no one else can do it. And so that started me actually training. So literally, I laugh, but literally about three to four years after I took the class, I taught it at OSHA Training Institute. So I actually taught that class a couple times up there. Since then, since moving over to SEAM Group now, which formerly Llewellyn, I actually still continue to train some OSHA uh, some state plan states and some and answer questions from federal and state OSHA people. So I still get those calls. So yeah, it, it, the whole combustible dust thing with OSHA just kind of happened. They needed somebody to do it. They gave me a choice to do in process safety management or combustible dust. And I chose combustible dust because I, I saw what PSM was and I really didn't want to do it. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky me indeed. Yeah. Maybe on that kind of timeline, because that's I really wanted to dig into that a bit because you have in 2008, which is really the the middle of your your time with with IOSHA. You had the Imperial Sugar Refinery explosion, which we covered in in episode three of the podcast. You also had the dust hazard analysis report coming out by the CSB in that time, where they covered West Pharmaceutical and CTA Acoustics and and some other large scale explosions. Um, so it was it was really that was kind of a, a big time of growth for industry recognition of the hazard. Certainly, I mentioned in 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 a previous podcast episode, I think it was number nine, a little bit about the research side and how through the 1980s, there's a lot of research around the world, which was, which was starting to look into the, the kind of fundamental science. But then really that period that you're talking about was where the industry started to take hold, at least in North America. What were you doing on a day-to-day basis? Like what'd that look like? They'd have an incident and uh, say a fire explosion and they call you in. Can you just kind of walk us through what that looks like? Do you go do the site inspection and just what, is, what does that look like from the, to the outside world? It's, it's changed now, so we can get into that as, as far as how it's evolved now. But back in those days, the knowledge on combustible dust was basically non-existent on the employer slash employee side and, for that matter, the OSHA side. It's gotten better in both respects now. We can touch on that here in a second. But back in those days, you know, you would literally have... COSHOs, which is Compliance Safety and Health Officers, CSHO. Uh, so you would literally have COSHOs walk by combustible dust because they didn't know what it was. Most of them didn't know flour was combustible. And most people were shocked that sugar could explode. I mean, I, I even remember a couple of my friends did Hayes Lemurs in Indiana. That was actually before the whole oil sugar thing. 
And even that inspection, looking back on it, I can tell you things were missed, but it wasn't their fault because even looking at the amount of knowledge we had at that point, I don't even think there was a class with OSHA training Institute. So, but generally what's happened and when, what happened when I was there, uh, when I did a combustible dust inspections is when I started doing them again, the knowledge just wasn't there. So a lot of them came as part of the national emphasis program. So we looked at their, their NAICS code, which is North American industrial classification system or NAIC code. Um, we would look at that six digit code and we would look at who we have in the state that falls on that code. They would then give a printout of those facilities and say, okay, you go do this one. Like, okay. <laughs> and so, uh, and then essentially I would show up and I would do essentially a wall to wall unannounced inspection to look at everything related to combustible dust. I mean, I remember I've done, you know, I did a starch plant that way. I did a plastics facility that way. How were you typically received when you, when you showed up? Was it just blank stares and, and what is combustible dust or how did, how that look like from the employer side? Yeah, it, it was basically that. Uh, it was blank stares. I mean, some of it was, we don't have a problem, but the one thing I did realize very quickly is at most of these facilities I showed up to, they were having incidents. They just weren't being reported because no one died. I'll never forget. I showed up at one facility that was a plastics facility that essentially was doing plastics recycling, which anybody, anything recycling is going to be really dirty uh, on the dust side. I'll never forget. I showed up there. The dust on the floor was above my ankles and spots. And they were having one flash fire a week. Again, had we not done the National Emphasis Program, we never would have showed up at that facility. Yeah, that's a good point. I In, in last week's episode with uh, Ivan Popoliti, we talked a little bit about how close are, are these incidents to the margin of causing injury or fatality. And the big issue is they, they don't get reported until, well, sometimes they don't get reported when there's an injury, but you know they don't get reported until there's a fatality or an injury. But how how close to the margin are you when you're having a fire or a flash fire routinely? And and really, I, I don't think it's, in that episode I mentioned, I don't think it's once you lose a finger, that's when we should start saying, hey, what's the issue here? I think we should look take a look a little bit sooner before then and say, okay, well, how can we prevent these from happening in the first place? Well, yeah, and it, it even goes beyond that. I mean, yeah, not reporting the incidents is a big enough problem, but the bigger problem, in my opinion, is that most of the facilities out there that I deal with both on the OSHA side and now the consulting side, they don't understand what a near miss is. They don't understand because I've been at facilities. I'll never forget. I was at one where literally there's a paper facility. And because of the way the dust collection system was set up, they, it was broken. Employees knew it was broken. So instead of sucking dust, it would blow it back out of the hopper. And unfortunately for me, I was right by it when it happened. Uh, and created one heck of a dust cloud enough where you couldn't see light through it, which is pretty much near the minimum explosible concentration. And, and this was happening multiple times a week. And I'm trying to explain to that facility that that, that is a near miss, guys. Well, nothing's happened in a million, billion, trillion years. I, got, <laughs> I was like, I understand that, but I'm looking and forklifts are driving through the cloud. And I'm just, you know, I'm trying to explain to them that and at this point, they didn't even have an incident program. They didn't even investigate any incidents, which is actually a pretty common occurrence, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. And it's not so much from from my side. I mean, obviously, we do the combustible dust incident database, so we're trying to gather information. But I don't care so much if companies report externally. But please look at doing something internally when you have these issues. 
And for the for the listeners, uh, the minimum explosible concentration of most dust clouds ranges from say 20 to 100 grams per meter cubed, which doesn't mean a lot to the regular person. But if you if you actually have that cloud in the air, it's it's thick. You can't see through it, and that's what Jason's talking about. We shine a light on one side, you couldn't see through it. So if you see a, a dust cloud that is at that point, and I, I shared a video of this one time of uh, milk farmers in Europe, they were spraying powdered milk to dispute some government regulations, and it was thick. You couldn't see through it, and it was there was tons and tons of it around, and it never ignited, but it, it could have, and you would have had a giant flash fire. What I generally tell people is if you have a dust cloud that's about 40 grams per cubic meter, you wouldn't be able to see a 25-watt light bulb five feet in front of your face. That way you can visualize what that number is. So in 2013 or 14, I believe you moved over to the consulting side and, and spent five years with, with Llewellyn, now, now Scene Group. Looking back on that, with the, now you have a ton of experience. Do you have an estimate of how many facilities you've walked in the last five or even 18 years? You know, ever since the whole DHA term has been created, I've done hundreds of DHAs at, at various facilities, pretty much everyone I could think of. And on the OSHA side, I either assisted or performed on over probably 50 to 75 combustible dust compliance inspections. So with that kind of really detailed knowledge then that you, you've got looking back on, on OSHA inspectors today and compliance officers, what's kind of the... What's, what's missing there? What could we do better to educate them, to have them be able to communicate with and educate the, the employers, the employees, um, and at the end of the day, what, with what we care about, which is actually keeping the, the people safe? What's, what's kind of missing there? Well, I mean, I think one of the major problems is, is that the compliance officers aren't given the proper tools to do what they need to do. And a lot of that is the training, but it even goes further than that. I mean, it all depends on which state you're in sometimes too, whether it's a state plan state or a federal state. So like, for example, me being in Indiana, that's a state plan state. But if you go over to the border in Illinois and Ohio, they're federal states. And so there's little to no consistency, even with the National Emphasis Program, of how these things are actually enforced. So it's kind of the luck of the draw of who you get. But with this lack of training on the compliance officer side, you know, I get, I hear it both ways. And obviously being on that side, I can appreciate it, I guess. But I hear it from employers sometimes and the clients you work with that, well, OSHA has been in here, didn't see anything. Well, they didn't see anything because they're not trained to see it or even worse, they know it's there, but they're told not to address it. And the reason that that second one happens when they're told not to address it is because there's a lot of work involved in this and documenting these hazards you know, when it goes documenting some of the holdup in court, I can attest to that. I mean, I'll never forget when I did my fatality that where it killed a contractor in a coal-fired power plant, the worksheets for the citations I had were over 100 pages. So I literally wrote 100 pages to substantiate that citation, and those were willfuls. But unfortunately, they're just not given enough training. And I always tell this to people you know, the people, the compliance officers don't get enough training is one thing. What's worse is the ones that either got training or didn't get enough training, but still try to enforce this stuff. And that makes it even worse. Because I've, I've actually been on that side on, you know, where I'm at now on the consulting side, where I've actually had to pull compliance officers off to the side because the employer or the client wanted them there for the DHA, which is not something I would suggest, by the way. Um, but I've had to pull them off to the side to say, look, 
you're using the wrong standard. No, I'm not. I go, yeah. And I had to tell this poor compliance officer that you're using NFPA 654 to address a metal dust hazard. That's the wrong standard. And he's like, well, I'm going to go ahead and cite this. I, I, you can if you want, but I'm just guaranteeing you, if you challenge it, you're going to lose. We, we track OSHA citations, mostly federal, because it's, it's a lot harder to access the individual state's information, which goes with, with kind of what you're saying about this kind of divide between state-led and federal OSHA. But what does that challenge process look like? Because all I know from it is it's listed as challenge, and some of them, usually the fine will get reduced if it's met in some way. But can you shed any, or are you able to shed any light into what that looks like? Yeah, it's, it's all public. It's all public information. So um, essentially, the they're called safety orders. They're not called citations. But the safety orders are issued with individual safety orders or citations on them. Um, and, um, you, you know, we can get into what are the most popular things that are cited. I can get into that a little later. But, uh, but the safety orders are issued. And at that point, the employer or whoever was issued the citations has... 15 working days to either agree to the citations or set up what's called an informal conference. If they do the informal conference, what that is is that you either do it on the phone or you come into the office, uh, the OSHA office, and at that point you sit down with the director or the commissioner or whoever wants to get involved in this at this point on the OSHA side and possibly even the compliance officer, depending on how technical it is. And essentially, you try to work out a settlement. And at that point, you would just say, the employer may say, I don't agree with safety order 11A, and here's why. Um, and you basically give your case, and, you know, the OSHA office at that point would say, well, you know, we don't agree with you either. Or, hey, we, we see what you're saying. Let's, let's try to work out a settlement. The whole point of the informal conference is to see, can a settlement be reached if possible, or is it going to have to get contested? But you, they have 15 working days to either do that informal conference or contest the safety orders. If they don't contest them within three weeks, they can't challenge them. They become final. So you have three weeks to make your decision on, are you going to do this or not in terms of comply with these things or not? And then once that goes through and say a, a change order, uh, I can't remember the exact terminology, but change order is, is part of that they need to change in operation. Do they have a fixed amount of time that is required to, to actually implement the new system or how does that work? It depends on how long. I mean, when I was there, the longest you could go was 60 working days, which I would often give on combustible dust because these are not easy fixes. But there are there is a certain point. It, it, some, some offices are 30 days. These are working days, by the way. Or some offices are 60 days. I've had some that say, depending on the citation, you get one day. So it depends. It, it, that's where there's some inconsistency there. So, But you can always apply for extensions with the supervisor or with the director or whoever, uh, as long as there's a valid reason for it. So if you called them up and said, look, we got to order this new equipment, or hey, we got to get a consultant involved, or hey, we got to do this, generally they're going to give you an extension, at least one of them, if, they, if you show good faith. Yeah, if you're willing to communicate and actually talk through it. I'm sure some companies may just some companies are probably very open and, and want to help change or fix any issues while other companies may be, you know, kind of clamshell tight and, and a lot less communication going through there. Well, and the one thing I'll, I'll just bring up too about this whole 
settling thing, which, you know, we, we, I don't necessarily get involved in on the, where I'm at now, because that's more of a conflict of interest for me, because I still have a lot of friends in the compliance side. But um, the one thing I will say is that the employers or even some of our clients or some of the people I've seen out there, they focus way too much on the fines. So, okay, you know, you can have a fine of 7,000 and it gets knocked down to 3,000. What people don't realize is that even if you knock that fine down, you still got to fix it. And so it could, you could have saved 4,000, but I've seen citations the way they were written anyway, where it would literally cost a million dollars to fix that citation. Yeah. And that's not very helpful because then depending on the, the company, it may not even be economically feasible to, to fix the, the root issue, which is what we want to have done in the first place. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, OSHA may not be able to give you a lot of help on how to fix it. I mean, and they can't recommend one company over another as far as an outside entity. It's against the law. You can't do that. So, but some of them will give you a list of people, but that's even more dangerous because if those people aren't qualified or OSHA didn't do their due diligence to giving you that list, they can actually try to fix it and actually cause a hazard to actually increase by doing it incorrectly. So, I think that's a pretty important point that people need to realize that, yeah, you may have saved a few thousand dollars, but if that citation stands, even if it went from serious to other than serious, you still got to fix it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so you kind of mentioned a couple things that, that maybe we'll, we'll, we'll head towards, but I wanted to, the other thing I want to really talk to you about is what you saw as, as some of the biggest issues in, in the current status of combustible dust safety from just the whole summary of your your experience so far. And, and luckily this week, I actually saw a, an article come out with, with your name on it with, uh, at, uh, occupational health and safety magazine. And the, the title of the article is why qualifications matter when performing a dust hazard analysis. And it's quite good. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Am I right in thinking that that's what you think one of the number one issues are in, in combustible dust safety today? I think that at least on where I'm at now in terms of the consulting side, that's probably the number one issue um, is that, you know, sitting on the NFPA 652 committee, you know, I, I guess I'll take responsibility for where we're at now because it is that we created that term qualified person when we created the DHA in 2000, when the standard came out in 2015. But the problem is, is that there's a lot of things wrong with that. And, We've got facilities who think they're qualified, and then we've got outside entities who think they're qualified, and it, and basically none of the authorities having jurisdiction or the AHJs, whether it be insurance, OSHA, you know, the fire marshals, the building code officials, very few of them are qualified. So, but again, there's a lot of you know inaccuracies there are a lot of misnomers on who's qualified and who's not you can't take a class and be magically qualified all of a sudden to do a dha and is there a definition provided within nfpa currently or there is um but it refers back to nfpa 1451 which is actually a vehicle maintenance standard uh which is something i mentioned in the article which you know it really needs to be updated and changed. And this is a very hard topic to, to hammer down for obvious reasons. But generally, I mean, most industries or even most facilities that I see out there don't have qualified people, you know, on site. So they have to go to outside entities to get those qualified people to do these DHAs. 
unfortunately, they make the decision or they try to make the decision once they find the, the people, they don't know how to evaluate who's qualified and who's not. It's kind of like, unfortunately, the wild, wild west out there right now in terms of DHAs. You know, I, I've seen one DHA out there for the report was two pages. I don't know what you think you did in two pages, but it, a DHA is a lot more involved in that and uh, trying to figure out all these hazards and things. Well, I'm sure you see some that are just the NFPA guidelines, a couple of pages taken out and stapled together as well. Yeah, there's some clients that don't know it, but all they paid for was to get the standard regurgitated back to them. They could have just read the standard and just got what, what was in that report or quote unquote report anyway. But I think where that comes from, and this is probably in, in a, on the consulting side, it's the qualified person thing. But even on the consulting side and definitely on the employer slash client side or the facility side, probably the number one thing there is no training. Um, the number one cited OSHA citation continues to be no training on combustible dust hazards. It is not general duty clause. Everybody thinks it is. It is not. It's, it's an OSHA requirement in every state and federal state, no matter what it is. It's under the hazard communication standard, 1910-1200. It may be different in the states, but, but that standard says you have to train people on the hazards of all chemicals, including combustible dust. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. And I don't know if I've heard that. I, everyone knows the, the general duty clause, at least by name, um, and that a lot of people get cited. Um, general duty clause states that you must keep a workplace free from hazards, known hazards, essentially. And then you can point to NFPA and say these are known hazards. And, and that's how some citations come up. But this training one's interesting as well. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll track down links to these uh, different standards for all the ones that we can and include them in the show notes as well. But so what does the training standard say? Is that everyone in a facility handling combustible dust needs to have some level of training or, or what's that look like? I'm not actually familiar with the, the specific verbiage. It's not a prescriptive. It essentially says it's more of a performance base, but if it's under 1910. If you look at the federal law anyway, it's uh, 29 CFR, Code of Federal Regulations, CFR 1910-1200, paragraph H, and specifically subparagraph 1 and 3 are the ones that really apply. But essentially what it says is that you have to train all your employees on the physical and uh, health hazards of any chemical they work with, any hazardous chemical. And under OSHA's definition, combustible dust is a hazardous chemical. So it does fall under that, uh, any type of combustible dust. So it doesn't really matter whether we're talking flour, metal, sugar, wood, it, they, all, they all fall under that. But what it says is that they have to be trained on the hazards. That's basically all it really says. So it is vague, but I guess how as a compliance officer, I interpret that. And there's a, a word in there, especially in H1, that makes it very easy for the compliance officer because it says effective training. Because I go into a lot of facilities on the side I'm in now and even on the OSHA side where I was, we give people HASCOM training. They never include dust. I can tell you on the DHAs that we do here at SEAM Group, I'd say 99.9% .9 of them, the training isn't done. It's, and that's something we look for in every DHA and it's never done. We, we talked a bit about the training for people to actually perform DHAs, but I assume it's a, it's a lesser degree of training that, that is needed to cover this requirement. But do you have something you point those companies to? Is there any OSHA documentation or, or what do you do at that point? 
not really, not on the training, unfortunately. Um, how we handle it at, at theme group anyway is we can do that training. So whether it be, you know, myself or someone on my team, we can do that training uh, and we can offer that training in various ways, whether it be on site or in, as a webinar. But you are right there, Chris. It is a lesser, lesser level. Depending on the dust and the operations, it could be as little as an hour or two or a day or two or a week. It just depends on how many dust you got, the complexity and, and things like that. I mean, if you have metal dust, I mean, I've seen some metal dust is so reactive that when rain hits it, it sparks. You need more training on that. <laughs> so Burning hot magnesium or... Yeah. Yeah. Training on wood dust versus magnesium is going to be a little different. And that's kind of what the standard gets at without saying is that you have to train on the physical hazards of what that dust is. And also your processes that anything that does anything with that dust. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think we covered, we covered actually a lot of ground about 18 years. And, and I think we came up with maybe two to 400 facility walk-ins just in the last 30 minutes. I guess the, the kind of big question is what do you see as the, the way forward? Are there maybe just, uh, I don't know, let's, let's pick the top three kind of bullet points that, that uh, Jason Reason would like to see our community do moving forward to kind of help alleviate some of these problems. And I hate, and I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, so feel free to to bounce some ideas around. But um, I'm just I'm interested to try to see what we think we can do, kind of moving forward. No, I, I think you know, in no particular order here, I, I think the the qualified person issue definitely needs to be taken care of because it's a bigger issue than people realize. You know how that's going to be done is obviously it's going to be it's going to have to disseminate from the committee uh, 652 down to the other committees uh, with a lot of input there from a lot of my friends that sit on those committees. But I think that's something that definitely needs to be done because that's going to help not only on the outside entity side, whether it be consultants or whoever, but it's also going to help on the facility side and even the OSHA side to a lesser extent. Because there's a misnomer out there that people think, well, of course OSHA compliance officers are qualified. No, they're not. So I think that's a big, big issue. I mean, but where we stand, and I, and I hate to say this, this goes into the second thing, which is the training thing I just talked about. I say this all the time, people don't believe me, but where we stand in dust these days, with even with everything that's gone on and for, for how long the dust standards have been out there and the incidents have been occurring, I, I always tell people, I think we're in the infancy of dust because of the knowledge. There's just such a knowledge gap there that either people don't aren't aware of it or they don't want to actually admit it's a problem. Because the one thing I'll tell you um, about OSHA is when they were doing the standard out there, as far as the combustible dust standard, they determined very quickly that if this standard ever came to fruition and came out, it would be the most expensive standard in the history of OSHA to comply with. It'd be more expensive than PSM. Now, for big facilities, that's not a big deal. But for people got to realize it covered small mom and pop two person wood shops. Yeah. You got a fire in your dust collector and you go open up the door and, and then you got a flash fire coming back. at you. Yeah. Cause people got to realize that OSHA, as long as you have one employee, you're covered. So that's all it takes to be covered under most OSHA standards is one employee. So, I mean, for the training thing, I mean, people have got to understand these hazards and, I think what happens is, is that when people understand these hazards, and I see this on both sides of it, 
after they know what the hazard is, they get really, really scared because they hear these incidents and, you know, they automatically, and some of this is the consultant's fault, to be honest with you, because there's a lot of doom and gloom people out there that hear them to death when they shouldn't. And some of them just think, well, you know, we don't want to know there's a hazard because well, it'll put us out of business. You know, if, if you get the right person in there and you've got the right, the person with the right expertise and, you know, all those things align and your employees have the proper training, you can do this. And there is cost effective and most importantly, safe ways to do this to mitigate these hazards. But it's that lack of training that is not getting that message or not allowing that message to get through. So I think that that lack of training definitely needs to be done. And until it is, or until it starts to move a little bit, you know, I, I hate to say this, but it, you know, we're probably going to have another incident eventually on the size of Imperial Sugar or near it. And we came close last year in Wisconsin with the Didion Mills explosion. So with five employees killed. So, I mean, and I, even then, I don't know if that's going to be enough. But I mean, even going to the training thing here, just to finish this part up, a lot of people don't realize, because I have a lot of clients in California, they don't realize Cal OSHA has a combustible dust standard. They're the only ones that do. Now, I, I won't speak to what I really think of it, um, but it's, some of it is very vague in how it's written. But I, I have to tell clients that, yeah, there is a combustible dust standard you have to comply with for Cal OSHA. Even that right there tells you that they're not trained. They don't even know the standard exists. So we have the two, the two big ones are our definition of a qualified person in terms of DHAs. Um, that sort of falls on NFPA at the current time, maybe even leaning in, in my mind a bit towards um, some definitions that are maybe available around the world that, that may cover some of this stuff, just seeing how that may have worked or may have not have worked. And we'll talk about that a bit in, maybe in some future episodes. And then just the training. So training for employers, training for the workforce, training for OSHA, um, and training for this kind of next generation of even combustible dust experts that that come up so that we have that knowledge gap. Is there, is there one other thing that you think would, would help a lot to, to further our cause? We've got to consolidate the standards. What uh, people don't realize is you know, it's been beating their head because NFPA is doing it and they're doing one heck of a job at it on NFPA 652. You know, I frequently tell this when I do presentations at conferences and wherever I let people want me to speak at. There's over 50 standards that apply to combustible dust right now. There's not just the NFPAs, which is about 20, 25 of those. You've got the state and local fire codes. They all mention it. The state and local building codes. You've got the industrial ventilation manual. You've got all this stuff that I keep going. There's about 20 OSHA standards that apply, not including the general duty clause. And the problem is, is that, you know, nobody knows where to look. And I wish I could tell people that these standards say the same thing. They do not. I can tell you that I think NFPA is moving much faster than I thought they would to consolidate the main combustible dust standards. So I think in five to 10 years, I don't know if 484, 654 will exist anymore. They're going to be combined into one big, ugly 652, one way or another. We are moving towards that point. Um, and it's going faster than I thought it actually would, to be honest with you. So when we get there, I don't know. But it's, and how it's going to happen, I don't know. I'm sure there's going to be fights. But it is moving in the right direction. But until that point, I mean, even if OSHA or 
the federal government or whoever wanted to adopt a combustible dust standard, at this point, you know, I'll just paraphrase here, they have enough trouble passing one standard, let alone 50. And now you're going to basically, you can't pass that many. So that was the whole reason 652 was created. A lot of people don't realize that OSHA asked for it. And I've heard actually that some employers, I know this is a contentious topic and and probably we won't go into, we don't have time to go into too many details, but I have had um, people in food processing industries, people in woodworking industries um, reach out to me and say, we, as a health and safety manager at my company, I wish there was a, a OSHA standard on combustible dust because I can't get the funding to, to actually implement some of the changes that I want because I have nothing to point to, nothing to hang my hat to where there is more um, maybe industrial hygiene standard or something they point to. And they're saying, look, we need to handle combustible dust, but they're having a hard time convincing their line managers Actually, they're, they have been calling. Now, this isn't everyone. Some people are calling for more deregulation of, of the area. But I have had people reach out and say, I wish there was a, a OSHA combustible standard I could point to to help me get my facility safer at the end of the day. Yeah, and that might be a good topic for, for another discussion because, yeah, I, I could go both ways on that, to be honest with you, on which way it would go. And the perspective I have, I guess, would be unique in the fact that I enforced this stuff in the past. But but yeah, I, but I think part of the problem is just people are overwhelmed. Um, and it's not just the facilities, it's the people that do the DHAs. Because, you know, I have people that I've seen reports where standards are missed. And because of that, hazards are missed. Most of these standards update every three to four years. So you got to read a new one every three to four years and update all your stuff. And, and they're not that cheap either. <laughs> no, they're not. Having bought, a, bought a quite a, a round of them for, for Dustex research. Um, they're, they're expensive to get on mass, the whole, the whole batch of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I, you know, like I said, we are moving towards it on the NFPA side. I do see movement on that. Uh, will it make things better? I don't know. I don't think it can make things worse in my opinion, but, but I think until you're never going to see one OSHA standard until you see one combustible dust standard. And right now we don't have that. And if 652 is going to be that standard when combined with all the other stuff that's out there and the what I call the four majors, which is 61, 484, 654, and 664, if you combine all those into 652, you get a good enough thing that you would probably be covered under most of the stuff. Yeah, good starting spot. Yeah, but until that happens, I mean, you're it's just going to be it's going to be even worse. And and I can say that it's not only writing these NFPA standards, but also you know, I've written some stuff for the fire code and the building code too, and it's just as bad on that side. Yeah. Well, I think I think we'll leave it at that. We covered covered quite a bit of ground looking at, you know, the the view from a compliance officer looking out and the view looking into OSHA from from combustible dust consultants and from the safety side and and what some of the mismatches might be there and, and even covered a little bit on what some of the actual strengths are and things that we're doing right. Um, and then just talking through some of the, the difficulties that we have in in the current status of combustible dust safety, looking at things like definition of a qualified person, the need to do DHAs by a specific time, and who's what workforce do we have to do those, um, the training that's needed, and, and then just closing out with this consolidation of standards. These are all these are the big issues. These are the things that we as a community really need to to start buckling down and, and figuring out how to handle over the next five, 10 year period to, to at least reduce the frequency of, of these kind of incidents. So I think that's a great amount of material. I, I, 
really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk through everything and share your experience. Do you want to leave the, the listeners with any one last comment before we, we close out the interview? Um, I guess my, my only comment is, you know, obviously know your limitations, you know, with the DHA. And if you're going to actually go to an outside entity, like a consulting or an engineering firm, definitely do your research. I mean, being qualified is one thing, but also making sure that you get the, all those hazards identified is definitely important. And don't rely on the fact that OSHA has not been at your facility or that the OSHA compliance officer actually knows what they're actually looking at. And because again, I, I've talked to many people as far as compliance officers that have walked by these hazards and we can debate whose fault it is, but relying on the fact that they never brought it up is doesn't mean the hazard doesn't exist. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point to, to end off on. I would encourage people, we'll have Jason's contact information or link through to, to Seam Group, but I, I would encourage them to reach out and talk to him. So Llewellyn has a, has a, a very strong background in this. I know Jason's got a, a really great team with Llewellyn and, and now Seam Group as well. Um, there will be links in the show notes to that, that article that we mentioned, Why Qualifications Matter when Performing a, a DHA. Um, so I would encourage people to reach out and I'd like to just say thank you one more time. Jason, and um, hopefully we'll be able to get you back on the show in the future as well. Sounds great, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. I really appreciate it. Wow. What a, what a great episode with Jason. I, I learned a ton just listening to him talk about his experience as a, as a compliance officer, his experience through consulting and some of the issues that he sees our community facing today. I kind of felt like I was actually a fly on the wall in a lot of the conversations that are going on in these big things that we're trying to figure out how to best define qualified people to be involved with dust hazard analysis, how the different NFPA guidelines work, how consolidation might work down the road, what it looks like to be a compliance officer. These are all really the, the big topics and big ticket items that we have to improve combustible dust safety, to avoid injury, avoid fatalities, and large facility loss in these industries. And I, I know I, I really learned a ton just through this interview. Um, I want to thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. As I mentioned, you can get all the information that was mentioned in the interview, like uh, the article that Jason wrote um, at dustsafetyscience.com slash 12 for this episode, episode number 12. And with that, I hope you have a great week. And I look forward to talking next week. <music>